Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Usually on War Stories, we're talking about individual acts of heroism and valor in the battlefield. But it's the week of Christmas. So I thought we'd do something a little bit different. And rather than talk about an individual or battle, I thought we'd talk about an event, a happy event. Today we have the story of the 1914 Christmas truce during the First World War. Now, the First World War kicked off, or maybe I should say the event that led to the First World War happened in June of 1914 when a Slav nationalist named Gavrilo Princip assassinated the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. It's a mouthful. Austria-Hungary was upset, rightfully so, and sent a list of demands to Serbia. You know, meet our demands or else. And the or else was, we're going to war. But the list of demands was not reasonable. It wasn't going to be met. So essentially what Austria-Hungary had done was say, we're going to war in a little while. Serbia would not be able to hold their own against the Austria-Hungarian Empire, so they looked to their big brother, to their protector, their ally, Russia, a sizable adversary. And Russia says, we got your back, Serbia. Austria-Hungary knows that that alliance is a thing, so they also look to one of their close allies, Germany. He says, hey, Germany, we're going to do this thing. We expect Russia to be involved. Can we count on you? And Germany says, we got you. Austria-Hungary, we got you. And that's going to lead largely to what is known as the Eastern Front during the First World War. But what we're talking about today is on the Western Front. And the Western Front came about because of Germany's actions after these kind of immediate panic negotiations and calls in July of 1914. Germany's in a tough spot because they share a border on their west with a lifelong enemy, France. So Germany is planning to fight alongside their allies, the Austro-Hungarians in the East, but they're concerned. This is all really high level here, kind of brushing things over with a broad brush. They're concerned that if they move the bulk of their army to the East to fight the Russians, it will leave them exposed on their West, France. Like maybe France will say, hey, this is the time. Germany's military is mobilized, and over there in Russia, we can take advantage, maybe reclaim some territory or whatever it might be. So Germany executes something known as the Schlieffen Plan. It had been in operation, or it had been in planning for some time, and it's been rehearsed a few times over, constantly modified. But the Schlieffen, the Schlieffen Plan generally says, again, really high level, quickly knock out France, and you can revert your energy. Ex- Quickly knock out France, have them sue for peace, and then you can shift your the balance of your resources over to fight this massive Russian military in the east. And the reason for this, it's not crazy. The Russian Empire is massive. The manpower, the equipment they can produce, their, you know, how long they can stay in a fight, how long they can sustain casualties. But they're notoriously slow at mobilizing and getting ready for war. So the Germans aren't crazy in thinking if we can swing this hammer through France. We don't have to topple the country, but if we can sue for peace in France early, 
I mean, it might only take a month or two, three months maybe is the idea. They then can completely shift and reallocate resources to the East. They don't think Russia is going to be ready in three months. It could take a lot longer than that. Of course, we're going to run into a couple challenges here. Russia will mobilize much faster than expected. And as Germany begins their movement west, they're going to hit a couple problems as well. First off, their border with France is heavily fortified. So they're not going to go through there. You have to go a little further north through Belgium. But now, in order to attack France, Germany has to violate the neutrality of Belgium, which will lead to the United Kingdom declaring war on Germany. The, Bel- the, the Belgian soldiers put up a valiant effort, a heck of a fight, but they were no match for the German military. But Germany also doesn't win any PR awards moving through Belgium. That period of time um, can be referred to as the rape of Belgium. So Germany is not winning anybody over to their side in the international stage at this early point in the war. But before long, really by um, in August, September of 1914, they're moving into France where they meet the French and parts of the British military. Now, they meet head-on in something known as the, one of the battles is known as the Battle of the Frontiers. And this is an interesting part in the conflict, because when we look at the First World War, maybe I should say I, when I look at the First World War, I think of trench warfare, not a maneuver fight. But at the outbreak of this conflict, it was a maneuver fight. They were positioning for terrain. They were meeting each other for the first time on the battlefield. And the Battle of the Frontiers was one of those examples. And it was horrible. Because as we'll see throughout military history, there's always these events. Sometimes it's a day long, sometimes months, other times an entire conflict, where the military tactics haven't yet caught up with the military technology. So at this point in the war, you have French soldiers wearing bright red uniforms, like parade dress uniforms. You think that makes for an easy target? You don't have helmets. People aren't wearing helmets. At least some of the sides aren't wearing helmets in 1914. Think about that. How many lives have been saved if they just would have started wearing helmets at the start of the war? Officers would lead charges across an open landscape with a saber drawn. They'd be charging into machine gun nests. That's what we're seeing during the Battle of the Frontiers. It's brutal. To give you an idea of what was happening in that battle. I have a hard time sometimes as an American because we look at our conflicts and it's hard to dial in what that would have been like in terms of casualties and losses. The Battle of the Frontiers is roughly a month long. It's kind of the first major battle between Germany and France and the United Kingdom. That month-long battle, the French would suffer 330,000 casualties. The Germans about 300,000. 330,000 casualties for the French. That's wounded, killed, missing, and taken prisoner. By comparison, that's roughly the amount that the United States suffered during the entire Korean War and the Vietnam War combined. The Korean War saw 130,000 U.S. casualties in Vietnam, 211,000. So those two combined, we're talking about 340,000 U.S. casualties versus 330,000 in one month for the French. That's devastating. And this is early in the war. This is the first few months of the conflict that we now know is going to rage for four years. Those types of casualties can't be sustained. So after these forces meet on the battlefield head on, 
They decide we have to get around their side, move around their flank. Common military tactic, right? Well, there's not a lot of room to go south because the French and German border is relatively fortified. There's not going to be a clear path for Germany to bypass the side of the French military and come in underneath. And then you run into neutral Switzerland. It's not that far. But to move north, you have a wall. Eventually, you're going to run into the North Sea. And what we see over the period of the next few months is a back and forth movement north called the Race to the Sea, where each side will try to outmaneuver the other to come around the side and gain an advantage, a maneuvered advantage, one after the other. And each time the French come around the side, the Germans stop them. And then the Germans move around the side. It's like a cartoon. Have you ever seen the cartoons where they're, they're putting up a fence and they're putting the fence up just in time for you know the, the cat or whatever to hit the fence? And then they just keep building down. That's the race to the sea. Nobody can quite get around the other one. And next thing you know, you blink and there is now a 300 plus mile line stretching from the North Sea down to Switzerland. And boom, you have your Western front. So the killing hasn't stopped. There's still bullets flying through the air, shrapnel in every which direction. But really, pretty early in 1914 or pretty early in the war in 1914 by fall, this is no longer a maneuver fight. We've entered a war of attrition. And if you're not going to maneuver to get out of the way or, or assault an enemy position, what are you going to do? Well, the natural reaction for anybody, for me, for you, for humans, is going to be to take cover. And in a lot of these places, what that meant was you go to ground, you dig, and you start to see the evolution of trench warfare what we now think of as being the entire First World War. Really, is that they couldn't maneuver anymore. They had tried all of the maneuver they could, and now there is a line of enemy forces facing each other from the North Sea all the way down to Switzerland. Now, these lines at some places were as little as 10 yards apart, right on top of each other. In other areas, could be could be miles. The area between the two was called no man's land for a lot of reasons. I mean, you can, I guess I should say that fits it for a lot of reasons. No man be dare, no man dare be caught out there in the daylight or no man can survive or I mean anything. It's a horrible, horrible area. So in a military position, when you're set into a defensive military position and you have time to set in your defense, what any side is going to do is have overlapping sectors of fire for your machine guns. You'll have pre-registered artillery firing points. Same for your mortars. You might have mines, barbed wire, maybe snipers set up to cover areas that you can't see from your other observation points. That's one defensive position. No man's land was the intersection of two of them because for the British and the French, they had all of their defensive positions and fortifications and lanes of fire set up. The Germans had the same thing and it overlapped in the middle. So no man's land it's horrible. It's a death wish going out there in daylight. And one of the tragedies of the First World War is it's not only a death wish if a German soldier goes out there. It's a death wish if anybody goes out there. You could get shot just as easily by your own side. I mean, now that we have this trench system running the, the span of Western Europe, 
each side is trying to break through. And if you can break through, that might just might be what's needed for the entire line to collapse. And next thing you know, you're on your way to Paris or on your way to Berlin. Both sides are keeping a watchful eye on no man's land. They want to make sure they catch that enemy assault before it happens. As soon as it materializes, what can you do to mow it down? What can you do to call in artillery strikes? Then comes Christmas. Soldiers have been fighting for a few months. This will be their first Christmas during the war, first Christmas in the trenches. And there's not a formal ceasefire that's put into effect. I think the Pope at the time suggested one. I don't want to say that it was declined as much as maybe just wasn't listened to or certainly not adopted. I mean, the the Pope had no say over what the belligerents in this war did, right? And they just maybe didn't listen to it at all. Either way, the troops in the front line would take matters into their own hands. And this entire sector of the Western Front would see sporadic fire. It wasn't as though there were artillery rounds, machine guns firing 24-7 everywhere. There were certain sectors that were hot and certain ones that were cold, and there'd be gaps in the artillery fire. And on December 25th, Christmas Day, as the artillery fire slowed, there were reports of singing. Might be the British singing for a period of time, singing Christmas carols. And when they finished, before they could get to their next song, the Germans started singing their own Christmas carols. Next thing you know, they're going back and forth, almost like they're singing to each other. Then randomly, someone would yell out, Merry Christmas. And to their surprise, it would be met across no man's land from a, from a, from a soldier on the opposing side shouting the greeting back, Merry Christmas to you. Eventually, little dingy Christmas trees would make their way on top of the parapet where a sniper usually would sit. And before long, in the area where even the glimpse of a uniform a few hours prior was enough to get every sniper's attention, a soldier stepped up, stepped out of the trench. Now, this didn't happen exclusively to one side. It didn't. There, there were reports of this starting with the British and the French and, and the Germans at various places across the front. And this didn't happen everywhere. There was still fighting on Christmas Day. But in certain sectors, a brave soldier, think about that. Think about being the one to poke your head above the trench, stand up, and wave to the other side. Can you just imagine his buddies in the trench right next to him? Maybe it's, you You know, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, if you want to get killed on the Western Front, that's what you do. Just stand up out of the trench for a minute on, in daylight hours. That, that'll get you sent home at best. And as they waited to see what would happen for their buddies, standing up there waving to no man's land into the enemy trench, is it going to be met with machine gun fire? An artillery barrage? Maybe a lone sniper's bullet that's waiting nearby? Instead, a soldier from the opposing trench got up, walked out, and returned the wave. Shortly thereafter, they were met by more. A second, a third, 
Think of the hesitation. Think of even after watching your buddy stand up there and not get shot. What's it take for you to get up? How bad do the trenches have to be? Actually, it's probably another way to say it for you to say, well, worth a shot. Let's get up there. We're going to celebrate Christmas somehow. And the soldiers on all sides, German, German, British, and French, at various places across the line on December 25th, 1914, exited the trench and celebrated Christmas, either on their own, in plain view of the enemy doing the same, or sometimes together. There were reports of British barbers giving haircuts to German soldiers. They traded food, swapped souvenirs. And I like to think that they were trading things like buttons and hats and parts of their uniform, thinking, hopefully, I can give this, show this to a family member when I get home. They're probably both thinking that. They shared pictures of their children with the opposing soldiers. And like all veterans throughout history do when they meet another veteran, they told war stories from their own point of view. There were soccer games, football matches as well. Groups would sing together, shake hands, hug, talk. A lot of them had, there were a lot of English soldiers that had been to Germany, a lot of French soldiers that had been to Germany, a lot of German soldiers that had family or new people in the other two countries. It was something that started at the bottom and trickled up as opposed to the other way around. So this wasn't mandated anywhere. There was no general that said, we're going to have a Christmas truce on December 25th. It was a decision in the trenches that the soldiers made themselves. And they decided to risk it to step out. And I have to imagine that as you go up the chain of command, nobody wants to be the first one to say, cancel it, get back in your trenches, we're going to open fire. So there were areas where this just wasn't reported, other areas where they turned a blind eye. But this truce, kind of a live and let live mentality on Christmas Day, was awesome. Both sides used it as an opportunity to remove any wounded, certainly, from no man's land, but also to gather their dead. If there were any dead closer to the other trench, they would go pull them aside. They'd, they'd clean up. They'd sing. They'd eat well. They'd share food. They'd, they'd frater, fraternize, which isn't a term the military leadership was really looking for, and we'll get to that in a minute. Generally, the Christmas truce wrapped up on December 25th. They went back to their respective sides, said goodbye to each other in a lot of cases. Just a weird thought to go back into a trench and start shooting at this guy that you were just talking to, maybe sharing a drink with. But in some areas, this truce extended um, into the new year, the start of the new year, right around January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, I think it was. So again, the live and let live mentality down at the, the lowest level in the trench. And this wasn't received well all across the board. So it's a wonderful story now. It's a beautiful story now about, you know, just a really, really dark and nasty time in our history. But there were people that were upset by this. The, we'll just say leadership. The leadership within each one of these countries wasn't a big fan of this fraternization at the lowest level. They had spent, well, let me 
focus on that for a second. Doesn't that maybe say something if the people dictating the war don't want this type of fraternization, but the soldiers on the ground actually doing the killing have the humanity to step out of their trench and risk their lives and go over and share some of their food with their enemy? Or to find for an Englishman to find a German soldier and tell him about his family or take a, try to take a picture? I don't know. It just kind of makes you think about the nature of this conflict and probably all conflicts. If It almost sounds like there's one group that wanted to fight and the people actually doing the fighting said, well, we can get along if we need to get along. Anyways, the truce was not appreciated by all. And well, the, the reason is the headquarters and the higher ups, the generals and the civilian leadership had spent a lot of money, a lot of time trying to demonize the enemy. It's something that we've done throughout history in combat. You don't want to look at your adversary as a father or son or husband. That doesn't help. It helps to look at them as animals, as less than human, savages, rapists, murderers. And that's how generally propaganda has worked throughout time. So all that propaganda money's for nothing. If your soldiers meet out in the middle of no man's land and are sharing stories from their childhood together, your soldiers may not be as willing to go over the top and use their bayonet next time when they're ordered to do so. So across the board, there were generally measures taken the following few years, and you wouldn't see this type of kind of uh, on-the-spot truce created throughout the rest of the war. There were, there were occasions where this type of thing would happen, but there were countermeasures. I mean, each side at times would stage attacks on Christmas Day for kind of the opposite effect. Think of the morale killer. If not only are you not having a Christmas ceasefire, Christmas truce, but you've got to defend against an attack all day. You can't even stop to celebrate that's kind of the direction this conflict turned. And one of the reasons that I saw for this was that the casualties mounted and the war got more and more brutal and vicious. And I hear that. But do you remember that I said 330,000 casualties for the French in one month? I mean, I, I, I know that it got worse and there were more and more casualties and they stacked up month after month. But they did this after that beating. I mean... It, essentially a draw there between between the French and the Germans. They, they both, you know, between the two militaries, you add in the British, you're talking almost 700,000 casualties between the three countries in one month. Somehow after that, they had no problem coming out of their trenches to wish each other a Merry Christmas. I don't know. I have a feeling that later on in the war, it had more to do with directives prohibiting that type of behavior than it did the soldiers' interest in doing so. But that's the Christmas truce of 1914 during the First World War. And it, it, I want to wrap up on a little bit of a different note here. I was trying to think of the right way to describe a feeling I have about this. And the term jealousy comes to mind. I'm not sure if that's the right one. But I love these parts of military history like this that show just this, show the humanity in the midst of it. This is an example, right, that we just talked about here today. But there's also the stories of World War II veterans going back to Europe and meeting up with the German soldier that was defending the beaches on Utah or whatever it might be. And they, get, and they can have a beer and talk about their experiences. And 
maybe forgive. I don't know. You see it in Vietnam as well. When recently, recently as in the last probably 10, 20 years, American soldiers and Marines are able to go back and interact with those that were fighting for the North Vietnamese or the Viet Cong. And they were adversaries trying to kill each other at one point, but there's somehow a way to move past that. And I don't know. It makes me feel like there's a, makes me feel like people are good, you know? Anyways, it makes me wonder with our current conflicts today, we'll just say loosely as the global war on terror, will we ever get there? Will we ever get to the point where American service members or allied service members that have fought in Iraq, Afghanistan, and around the world will ever have the opportunity to go back and visit the battlefield or meet with the adversaries that they fought against and share stories and talk about those times and would things be normal? I don't know. It, it, it tends to take a long time after a conflict for those to come into realization it sounds impossible, but walking out of no man's land in broad daylight in 1914 was impossible. But it happened. It happened on December 25th, 1914, with the Christmas truce at various points up and down the Western Front. So that'll do it for the story of the Christmas truce. Coming up shortly is going to be a, another series focused this time on the initial few months after the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. That's next time on War Stories.